Correct. On that happy note, good evening, everybody. It's uh, hard to believe that this is this is it. This is uh, this is it for a long time. Uh, our next our next year in this series is scheduled, I believe, for November second. Mark your calendar. You know, it's the first Wednesday after the after the Chagim. It's a little a little, huh? Uh, of course not, but, in the, but but you know, hopefully the. So it's it's a, it's, a, it's a long time. The book of Jonah, I thought, would be a good conclusion. Originally, we we had we were going to get into the middle of the twelve prophets, and I just felt that would be so anticlimactic. You know, here we are plugging away, plugging away, and then being smack dab in the middle, and then saying "see you in five months." At least in this capacity, it, it wasn't going to work. Whereas the book of Jonah stands on its own. There's really one question. Most people are familiar with the story from the time they're very little children. It's a, as we all know, I, I can tell what's popular for kids long before I had children of my own. Basically, if there are animals there, it's a hit, right? Which is really like Noah's Ark. The whole world drowned, but there's giraffes and elephants, right? So it's fantastic. Kids love it. Plagues, again, Egypt is reduced, you know, it's completely obliterated. But okay, there's frogs, there's locusts, you know, there's some, we always go with the lions rather than the flies for Arov. It's better for a plague kit. All these different things. And so kids love this stuff. So Jonah and the whale, of course, gets a lot of airtime on this, on this front also. And there's really one, you know, the story is like this. God tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, the wicked city of Nineveh, the, which became the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to get them to, well, I don't know if he explicitly told them to make them repent, but he said, go there because they've been really, really, really bad. Jonah, for some reason, which he doesn't bother to share with us, doesn't want to go. That part is clear. And he takes off and runs in the opposite direction, gets on a ship going to Tarshish the other way. He's going to the Mediterranean. God isn't amused, so he sends a huge storm. Sailors try very hard to get back to shore. doesn't work. They eventually ascertain that Jonah is the guy. He's the reason why trouble has brewed. Miriam, please. Say, what have you done? Well, I'm fleeing God. What? And, And then he says, further, all you need to do is throw me overboard and everything will be cool. Well, they didn't really want to do that, so they rode for a while. It didn't work. Finally, they toss him overboard. Storm immediately stops. And Jonah figures he's going to die, but alas, Mr. Whale comes and swallows him up. Right? And then Jonah's inside of a whale for three days. Prays to God while he's in there. Eventually, whale spits him out. Jonah now goes to Ninveh, proclaims that in 40 days, the city is going to be destroyed. And the city of Ninveh does the best repentance in biblical history. I mean, it's really phenomenal. Within seconds... The entire huge city, including the king, they all listen to this total stranger who probably smells like the inside of a whale. They never met him before, have no idea what's going on. They listen to him anyway. They all drop everything. They fast sackcloth and ashes, even for the sheep. They all repent. Great. And God pardons them. Then for some reason, which is also hard to figure out, Jonah is furious. And he says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were going to forgive them. And now I want to die. And God tries to teach him one final lesson. God gets the last word in the story, the end. It's, the whole thing is just 48 verses long, which makes for a long haftarah in Minchav Yom Kippur. But all, and plus we're exhausted by then, so it's even longer. But all the same, it's a pretty short biblical book. And the one question that comes up is, so why did he run away? What's wrong with just listening to what God says, which is the way that we like to think of prophets. We've discussed very recently other reluctant prophets, Moshe being the banner example of that, but also Jeremiah was reluctant, Ezekiel most recently was reluctant, but at least, honestly, I understand their plight. God tells Ezekiel that you're going to fail. Okay, so he doesn't want to go. 
So God finally compels him to say what he needs to say, and that's the way it goes. But Jonah never lets us know why he doesn't want to go. He just runs away. So why didn't he want to go? Yeah, David. He's afraid that they would repent. And then? And that would make Israel look bad. That make Israel look bad. Good. So one Midrashic line, very ancient interpretation, is what David is saying, that Jonah loved Israel. And he was afraid that if he goes to Nineveh, they might listen. And suddenly God is looking at this. Prophets for centuries yell at the people of Israel and almost nobody listens. Right? Then finally, the prophet goes to pagan city and within five seconds everybody repents. So how's that going to make Israel look? Bad. Okay, so that's one answer that's on the books. And not only on the books, but it's an ancient answer. Okay, good. Any other possibilities? Why did Jonah run away? It's, it's so weird. I mean, the prophet leaves and wants to die over this in the end. But what's he so upset about? That's what's weird about this book. I think the whale gets all the airtime because it's really interesting, right? One of these days, you know, it'll be a separate lecture. I have to tell you about a fellow named James Bartley. Really, really interesting. Some sailor in 1891 who evidently was swallowed by a whale and survived for about 36 hours. Really interesting story. I did a ton of research on this a bunch of years ago. And, you know, obviously the theologians loved it because he had a modern-day Jonah on his grave, apparently, it says a modern-day Jonah. Whether the story happened or not is another story, but we'll talk about all these things some other occasion. But for now... That's the part that gets all the airtime, but most people never understood this story because there's one basic feature, which is prophet is reluctant, but this time for the life of us, we can't figure it out. It's not the humility of Moses. It's not the fears of Jeremiah. It's not the desire to stay in God's close presence like Ezekiel and not wanting to go on a failed mission. Another answer that appears on the ancient books in the Midrash already is that Jonah was afraid of being accused of being a false prophet. Let's say he goes and tells the people of Nineveh that they're going to get clobbered. And they get afraid, and so they repent, and now they don't get clobbered. Well, now they might say, hey, he's a fraud. He said we were going to get destroyed, and look, we're still here. That's another answer that's on the books. Barbonell rejects both of these answers. Already in the 16th century, he thinks that both of these answers are incredibly far-fetched. He says, first of all, why assume that Israel will look bad by contrast? Maybe... If the Israelites hear that even a pagan city like Ninveh listened to the prophet, maybe some of us will wake up and say, hey, maybe we can do this too. In fact, I'm willing to bet that one of the reasons we read this story on Yom Kippur is to inspire exactly this point. It's not supposed to make us feel bad on Yom Kippur. Look at this. We're terrible sinners and the pagan city of Ninveh repented. That's not the point. The point isn't to put us down. The point is to inspire us. Even they repented, so much more so. We have an ongoing relationship with God. We should do a better job too. I'm sure that's one of the reasons we read it on Yom Kippur. So maybe that was true then too. Why assume that it's going to make Israel look worse? And, yeah, sorry, Miriam. But, um, God already had a good reputation because on the vote, when the others were pressured to vote, they voted for the Yeah, he has a great reputation in the book. You're absolutely right. And I I think that only strengthens the question against that view. And as far as being accused of being a false prophet, that's not the way that it works. If the people of Nineveh repent and then are spared, they will thank Jonah. The whole reason they repented is because they believed he was a true prophet. They didn't think, oh, maybe he's true, maybe he's false. Let's see if we get destroyed. That's not the way these things go. If they thought he was false, they would ignore him. 
It's exactly because they thought they believed him. That's why they repented. So Barbanel rejects both Midrashic answers with a wave of a hand. And so here we are now in the 15th, 16th centuries where Barbanel lives. And pretty much the entire history of traditional commentary had adopted one or both of those views. That's a precarious place to be as late as the 16th century. Yes. Welcome. I think a, a, a hint comes at the, at the end of the story with the tree that grows overnight and provides shade for, for Jonah, and then the tree dies. And God gives a lesson to him about that. And the lesson is, uh, you, you're crying over a tree that just died, that was only here for one day, and you have, and what about all these people in Invey? You didn't care about them, you know. And uh, they took it took it took many many years for these people to grow and build and so on and so forth. As it was, I think it was a, a statement showing that God cares. First of all, the young Kippur God does care and give and does listen to Chuma. First of all, sure. And, and secondly, uh, he even listens to the guy who asking for Chuma. Absolutely. Right? So I think that's. The, I thoroughly agree with you that God tries to convey and does convey those two messages. Whether Jonah buys in is another ballgame. But God certainly conveys that to the prophet and therefore to us in the book. 100%. But why did Jonah run away? What's wrong with those lessons to begin with? Right? He might have been afraid. First of all, they won't accept him. He was, he was not one of them. And secondly, uh, he was a Jew. So maybe he didn't want to be bothered with them. Okay, so that could be. Both could be. Good, Zahar. Beautiful. So you're with us with a Barbanel. You're riding with him step by step. After Barbanel throws out the Midrashic answers and says that they're beyond, he says, why Nineveh? It could be any wicked city here, like Sodom. Sodom has no national role to play. It's just the wicked city where Lot moved, and before you know it, it's over. Nineveh was a real important city in Israel's history because it became the capital of the Assyrian Empire shortly after Jonah's time, actually. And... Once it became the capital of the Assyrian Empire, it destroyed the world, as well as Israel. Israel got obliterated by the Assyrians. We spent some time talking about that in the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah watched that happen. Okay, so Jonah is thinking like this. All right, if I go over there and get them to repent, then they'll still be there, and they'll come along to destroy us one day. I know. I won't go. They won't repent. God will have to destroy them, and then they'll leave us alone, because they won't be there anymore. According to this approach, Jonah wants to be a martyr on behalf of the people of Israel. Right? He's willing to give up his life. If he has to be thrown overboard during the storm, that's fine. Because at least the wicked, vicious city of Nineveh will never be able to harm us. He's willing to go down with that. He's, he's, according to Barbanel, and Malbim in the 19th century is with this approach as well. He's martyring him, or well, it doesn't work because God is not going to let him get away with it. But in principle, he's willing to martyr himself on behalf of his people. So, yes, that's an excellent answer. And the advantage that a Barbanel gains, which is immense, is that we happen to know that Ninveh shortly thereafter did exactly what, you know, exactly what a Barbanel puts into Jonah's mind. Yeah. I know he's a prophet, Mother. but how does he know what's going to happen in the years? That is an important theological point that you're making. Prophets know things in the future when God tells them those things. There's... So you're absolutely right. The following generation of prophets, Amos and Isaiah, God told them the Assyrians are going to be destructive. But we have no way of knowing that Jonah knew this also. Your question is incredibly important. And just to strengthen your question, though, there's a bigger problem. If you read the book a hundred times over, as many of us have, 
The city of Nineveh is not in any way cast as the capital of an Assyrian empire. It's cast as an independent wicked city, like Saddam, actually. It's like, it looks like a city-state. It has its own king. It has its own population. There is no connection at all between this city of Nineveh and the national history that we find out elsewhere. The story can be read in a vacuum. right? Even though we know, we're very smart, we know that Nineveh became what it became, but the book doesn't focus on it that way at all. So much so that nobody is named, not the king of Nineveh, not the king of Israel at that time, not even the fish. Nobody, nobody has a name except for the prophet Jonah, right? It doesn't sound like this book is about Israel and its national history at all. And suddenly, here we are at the end of the 19th century, and boy, oh boy, are we in a hole. It's 48 verses. It's the most, one of the most familiar stories around. I sit around telling my daughter's Tanakh stories every night at the dinner table when I can. And so the Jonah story, when I get to it, it's like, wait a minute, it sounds like the one with the whale. I said, that, it is the one with the whale. Congratulations, we're great. They love that one, like everybody loves that one. It's a fantastic story. But here we are through the 19th century. We now have three leading tracks of interpretation, and all of them are so easy to just go, go like this. That means that we're not building on a strong foundation. It's really nerve-wracking to me in a good way. When you have three powerful answers that can be easily dismissed. So finally we roll into the 20th century. And in the 20th century, somebody decided to do something about this. And all of a sudden, a new answer came onto the map that became very popular through the whole 20th century. Of Yeshua Bakrach over in Israel, Allah Shalom, he had this answer. El Yakim Ben Menachem, the author of the Dat Mikra commentary, had it. Professor Uriel Simon of Bar Ilan adopted this interpretation. This was the hot 20th century interpretation. They said, you know, we're all speculating here. Why don't we find some verse in the book that might help us here? And so they all turn to chapter 4. So even though chapter 1 is what's in front of you, let's look at chapter 4. After God pardoned the city of Nineveh, chapter 4 begins like this. This displeased Jonah greatly, and he was grieved. He prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord, isn't this just what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I fled beforehand to Tarshish. For I know, he's he's saying explicitly why he ran away. Why speculate, right? For I know that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and renouncing punishment. I knew you were going to forgive them, and that's why I ran away. Well, what's wrong with forgiving them? Huh? Hmm? Oh, so that's the national answer that Abarbanel gives. So the 20th century people are rejecting that answer. Because they don't think that this story is about a national struggle between the Assyrians and the Israelites. I agree with them. I don't think it is at all about Israelites versus Assyrians. Even though we know that Nineveh was an important city that was very destructive. Also, why would God want the Assyrians Correct. Within that theological approach, you'd have to say, God wants the Assyrians to come and punish the people of Israel for being wicked, and that's how the prophets in the next generation slanted. But that's not what this book is about. It's what the books of Amos and Isaiah are about. Yeah, Shari? That's what came across my mind. If God were to punish the Assyrians, then Jonah could say to himself, well, why did God sending me already? Maybe the lesson is not for the Nineveh, but for Jonah. I agree with you. The situation was such a but it forces Jonah to act 
I agree with all of this, we, but we're still, we still have to get to the root of, okay, but what does he want to teach Jonah? So I'll tell you what these 20th century scholars all say. Jonah, this may sound weird to you because we all think of prophets in a certain way. Jonah actually opposes the existence of repentance, according to these 20th century scholars. He is against God on this. He's saying, God, I know your compassion. Compassionate, I know you're going to forgive these people when they repent, but I think that justice demands that they get obliterated because they've been so wicked for so long. It's a battle of principle. Right? So that's how they take it based on Jonah's protest. He says, look, I know you're compassionate, but I don't like that, and I want to die over this. And these scholars all quote the same source, which is at the... Now we go back to the front of the source sheets. It's from the Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud actually takes this slant, not with Jonah in particular, but they have this concept that there are some prophets who might actually oppose the institution of repentance. They think it's unjust. Now, I like to think of repentance as a really good thing. And fortunately, in this case, I have God on my side. Right? That, it's always good, right? You, you always end up on the right side of the fence theologically when you know that you have God on your side. And Jonah knows that God is against it. Right? God believes in repentance. And Jonah knows that, but he thinks it's wrong. Uh, because it's unjust, according to Jonah. In other words, right now, these people are really wicked. Therefore, they deserve punishment. Period. Even if they stop being wicked. Right? Whereas God's view in this story is, they stopped being wicked. Right? I understand both sides of the thing. I just like God's approach better. I think uh, there are certain cases where we might say some people have gone too far. Their wicked was so, wickedness was so enormous, there is no repentance. There's a crazy question that came up, just to give you a banner example of this. In the 60s, an ex-Nazi applied to convert to Judaism in Israel. Oh, no. For real. Uh, look it up. Uh, in the 1960s, I don't remember the name of the person. Not, not, not one of the biggest ones, but a, but a real Nazi, one who killed Jews. He said, I feel bad about what I've done. Great remorse. I've studied Judaism all these years, and I want to convert to Judaism. And he approached the chief rabbi of Israel. This is a real story. I'm not making this up. So the rabbis had a really interesting dilemma, right? On the one hand, we have Talmudic passages that some of the greatest sages descend from people like Haman and other great wicked people. So obviously somebody in this mix converted, right? However... Shouldn't, shouldn't, can we say there's a point of no return? This person's atrocities were so over the line that we should just hang them on the spot or at least throw them in jail for the rest of time, let alone reject his conversion application. Right? No, That's an example. I don't want to discuss this particular case. I'm just giving a, an example of where you might fairly say there is a point of no return and, there's, and repentance is done. God should punish this person. Right? I think that's a fair stance. Right? And, and here's a good example of that. So, getting back to this issue, getting back to whether that's pshat in Yonah, though. I have a very, uh, let's read the Jerusalem Talmud passage first. In the top, right above chapter one, right? It was asked of wisdom. What is the punishment for a sinner? She replied, misfortune pursues sinners. Sinners deserve to be punished, says the book of Proverbs. It was asked of prophecy. What is the punishment for a sinner? She replied, the person who sins, only he shall die. Meaning, once you've sinned, that's it. That's prophecy's position. It was asked of God. What is the punishment for a sinner? He replied, let him repent and gain atonement. Right? So these 20th century scholars first turn to Jonah's objection. He says, hey, I knew you were a compassionate God, but I don't like that. I like justice. And then they quote this passage in the Jerusalem Talmud, which seems to create a conflict that the prophets really wish their method of how they would create a perfect world is wipe out the bad guys and all you're left with are the good guys. And then the world is perfect. 
Right? Whereas God's approach is, let's give some repentance. The truth of the matter is, if you read the Tanakh, it's actually the exact opposite. God's approach is wipe out all the bad guys. <coughs> Look at the flood. Look at the golden calf. God's plan was, okay, you're sinning? Good. Wipe them out. Start with the best. And Moshe is the one who appeals to, let me try to make the people better. It's the human approach that actually wants the repentance rather than the divine approach. The divine approach in the Torah is much more severe. It says, wipe them all out and start with the best all over again. So I don't think that the Jerusalem Talmud accurately reflects what the Torah does. But more to the point, the whole claim that Rabbi Yoshua Bachraf, Rabbi Eliakim ben Menachem, and Professor Uriel Simon, they're making, is that prophets oppose repentance. And that's why Jonah ran away. The bad news for all of them is, have you ever read any other prophetic book? All of the prophets are pro-repentance. All of them. It's not that the prophets have this unified front against God and don't want the people of Israel to repent. No! They spend their whole lives trying to get the people of Israel to repent. They love repentance. They're crazy about it. They wish that more people would do it. Right? There's no, there's nothing in Tanakh about a systematic objection by the prophets against repentance. Jonah is the only one who seems to have a problem with this. Yeah, Abdel? Well, um, perhaps we have to distinguish the prophets that we're talking about that were pro-repentance were trying to get Israel to repent. Excellent, yeah. I agree, and I just want to... I, I think that that's the answer, and I think that that's correct. I think that that's actually what the book is about. Yeah, what Adele is saying is that the prophets of Israel, who are all pro-repentance, are preaching to the Israelites. You know, not going to a pagan city, but I want to just modify it slightly. It's not an anti-non-Jewish thing at all. Jonah's objection, this is my thesis, which, you know, I remember when finally all came together in like 2004. It was this big, it was this big epiphany. It's like, I think that's it. First of all, for the record, a Barbanel and Malbum elsewhere say it. It's just not their central thesis. But I'm like, no, but this is really, this should be their central thesis. Jonah is upset with pagans who are nice, who are still pagan. He believes what we believe, which is all people of the world need to be ethical monotheists. They need to believe in the one God and to be good people. That's what we call the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, the seven Noachide laws. The book of Jonah creates an amazing scenario where you have pagan people who are the nicest people you will ever meet. They're not just the nicest pagans you will ever meet. They're the nicest people. There's nobody better than these pagans. They're incredible. I love them. But they're all remaining in their pagan state. They don't become monotheists in this book. When the people of Ninveh repent... They fear God, but they don't become monotheists. They remain pagans. They just stop being immoral. As far as God is concerned, here you have pagans who are still pagan, but are moral now. God forgives those people. Jonah objects, this is the thesis, following Adele's approach, Jonah objects because they're still pagans. And and Jonah's view is what our view is, which is we want the world to worship one God and to be moral. That's what I think this story is about. And once you have that going for you, suddenly I think everything comes together. We look at chapter one, and you get these lovely sailors. I mean, you have to love them, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go at once to Ninveh, that great city, and proclaim judgment upon it, for their wickedness has come before me. Jonah, however, started to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's service. He went down to Yafo and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to sail with the others to Tarshish, away from the service of the Lord. So far, so good. And he's in rebellion. Again, here, there's no clue why he's running away. But you've got to plug with the thesis here. But the Lord cast a mighty wind upon the sea, and such a great tempest came upon the sea that the ship was in danger of breaking up. 
Verse 5. In their fright, the sailors cried out, each to his own god. And they flung the ship's cargo overboard to make it lighter for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the vessel where he lay down and fell asleep. The captain went over to him and cried out, How can you be sleeping so soundly? Up, call upon your god. Perhaps the god will be kind to us and we will not perish. So here we are, good Jewish people, religious Jews, reading a biblical text written by prophets. And there's a story of a prophet and a whole bunch of random pagans. Right? You have the sailors, you have the captain. Who should we be sympathizing with? Of course, it's a no-brainer. We have a prophet and anybody, the prophet wins. That's the rule. But here, I can't help but notice, the prophet, I don't know why, is rebelling against God. He's asleep on the job. <laughs> but the prophet is rebelling against God. I don't know why, but he sure is. He's not the first. No, but here, but that's the, the contrast is, is rather stark. Whereas the captain of the ship honestly sounds like a prophet. He's saying, wake up, call out unto your God. How could you be slumbering during this terrible you know, time of catastrophe? Get up and pray. He sounds like the prophet in the story. That's so weird. You have this pagan fellow, never know his name. You have a whole bunch of pagan sailors all doing what we all understand is the right thing to do. They're misguided. They're pagans after all. They're praying to each one to his own deity or deities, whatever they did in this situation. But they all are very religiously inclined. Whereas Jonah, all I know about him is that he is a prophet and he's rebelling against God. Very weird. But wait, it gets weirder. Verse 7. By the way, Jonah doesn't even answer him, nor does he seem to pray. The men said to one another, let us cast lots and find out on whose account this misfortune has come upon us. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us, who have you brought... You have brought this misfortune upon us. What is your business? Where have you come from? What is your country? And what, what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made both sea and land. Okay, what do the people want to know? When the sailors are asking all these questions, what do they really want to know? What, he did. what have you done? And he's giving his, you know, his little, you know, here's my passport. I'm a Hebrew. I serve God. And my religious credentials. So, sailors don't care. But here's, here's direct quotation versus indirect quotation. This is so awesome. By the way, these are Jonah's first words in the story. God speaks to him. Jonah silently flees. The sailors and the captain speak to him. He just remains silent. His first words in the book are, I am a Hebrew. Ivrianochi, right? Verse 10. The men were greatly terrified and they asked him, what have you done? When the ah, oh, this translation is awful. I'm sorry. It's usually very good. The men. It's not and when the men learned. It's the men learned that he was fleeing from the service of the Lord, for so he had told them. The narrator chimes in. Jonah actually did tell them what they wanted to know, namely, oh, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a I'm a Hebrew. I serve the one God, and I'm running away from Him. That's what he actually said. And then they said, What have you done? How if you serve such a powerful deity, what are you doing running away from Him? You can't do that. But the narrator broke up the quotation into direct quote, I am a Hebrew who serves the one God. And then the narrative, which indirectly quotes him, is saying, oh, and by the way, I'm rebelling against him. That shows how the narrator wishes to cast Jonah. What's important to the prophet here? What's important is not that he's running away from God. What's important is his attitude towards the other people on the boat. I serve the right God. You guys serve dung beetles. 
which they probably did. They likely were Phoenician sailors. That was definitely one of their deities. And I always like to smile that, you know, these guys are worshiping things that you could take out with a can of raid, right? And Jonah's thinking of the same thing. He's looking at these foolish sailors who are praying to these nonsensical and non-existent deities. They have it all wrong. And Jonah's like, look, you're talking to me about prayer? I serve the real God. You serve garbage. Right? I have it right and you have it wrong. What's interesting is the expression, I am a Hebrew. The Hebrew word for that is Ivri, which is an atypical word for Jew or Israelite in Tanakh. Usually it's either Yisrael or you say your tribe, or if you're from the southern kingdom, you say your Yehudi later on, Judean, which later on came to be the word for Jew. But he's crossed over to the other side. Exactly right. And that's actually how the term, excellent, that word Ivri is usually used throughout Tanakh when it is used when we are being contrasted with pagans. In the Egyptian narratives, you find that we're called the Ivrim a lot. That's because it's us and them. We're the Israelites who believe in God. And they're the pagans. That's what Jonah is saying. It's like, I'm a monotheist and you're pagans and you're telling me about worship? Now, a Barbanel has this fabulously ingenious comment, which cannot possibly be the primary intent of the verse, but it's brilliant, and I think it unlocks the whole section. A Barbanel says the word Ivri means what Adele says. But he, he makes a little midrashic, you know, a Barbanel sort of play. He says, Ivri sounds like the word Avaryan. What's Avaryan? A sinner. A Barbanel suggests that what, in one word, Jonah was trying to say, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a monotheist, I believe in one God, but I'm also sinning against God by running away. And that's how he explains, by the way, the direct and indirect quotation. That the sailors were so smart, they figured that all, all out. Now, to make that work, the, the sailors here would, A, have to know Hebrew really well, and B, be as smart as a Barbanel. The first is possible, they're in international commerce. The second is absolutely impossible. Barbanel is way too smart. There's no way they figured out from the word Ivri Anochi, that I am a Hebrew, that he was saying, and I'm also sinning against God. There is zero chance. But that's what the chapter is about. That's why I like Abarbanel's comment so much. The chapter is this weird, weird, weird thing where we have prophet and pagans. Okay, we all know prophet good, pagans bad. But in this chapter, it's not so. In this chapter, the prophet is rebelling against God. He is an Avaryan. He defiantly looks down upon these pagans by saying, I'm the Hebrew, I serve the right God, and you serve garbage. But the pagans in this chapter are phenomenal. Let me just make a weird analogy to the book of Job, then I'll get to you, Sherry. The book of Job is one of the most fabulous books ever written, and certainly one of the most courageous books ever written, and come next fall, or you know, we'll talk about it. But one thing that needs to be noted from now, the story could not work at all if you just had... Once upon a time, there was a righteous man who was suffering terribly, and then his friends came and said, it's your fault. Right? The reason why the story could not work is because we would have to think as readers, well, maybe the friends are right. How do we know God's ways? Right? So the book has to begin with God talking to the angelic host, saying, I really got it right with this guy. He's perfect. We need God's testimony in this book. It doesn't have to be a true story, but what matters in terms of its historicity, what matters is that it's telling, it's teaching the point that even a perfect, the, the hypothetical perfect person can suffer unfairly, unfairly. He has to be perfect. And he needs God's testimony in the book that he's perfect for the story to work. The book of Jonah operates on a similar premise. If Jonah has a problem with pagans, it won't help us if these pagans are just okay people. 
They need to be perfect. Because Jonah's battle here against God is a battle of principle. He thinks that every pagan is bad and deserves to be destroyed unless they stop being pagan. So as far as he's concerned, these sailors, look at them. They're lovely. They're lovely. They're praying. They're doing everything they possibly can within their pagan blinders. They don't see the truth because they're pagans. They grew up that way. And we can't help but have an incredibly sympathetic reading of them because they're lovely. Whereas Jonah doesn't care about their sympathetic anything. It's like a pagan is a pagan is a pagan. I don't care if they're the people of Ninveh and are wicked. And I don't care if they're nice like these sailors over here. Because I oppose pagans and I have nothing to say to them. Okay? That's what I think this book is about. When he defiantly says, I am a Hebrew, he's drawing his line in the sand, saying, I get it, you don't, leave me alone. Okay, Sherry, what are you going to say? But you know, you talk about uh, oh, oppositions. And actually, it seems like if anybody crossed over the line, it's Jonah and the sailors who went the other way. In other words, no matter whether you like what Correct. Uh, you know, and they're, in that sense, being more, they have more integrity than he does. They do, and that's what makes the story so fabulous. Yeah, I again. Hold on, yeah. Okay, yeah. You said something about, oh, the people of Nineveh are very, very nice, da, 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 da. but here it says, right, where is it, about the wickedness has, has come before, meaning from Nineveh. So where do you come up with the expression that, sorry, I didn't mean to phrase it that way. Uh, where, how, how can you say that they were all very, very nice? The people of Nineveh are horrible. These are the sailors I'm talking about. It's oh, original. original. Okay. The people in this chapter. Yes. People in Nineveh right. at the moment are awful. Yeah, Megan. Yeah. I was thinking that if the beetles that the sailors worship are irrelevant, that the gourd that um, uh, Jonah uh, worships at the end is also irrelevant. Well, we'll have to get to the gourd, yeah. They're kind of I'm with you on all of those points. I don't think Jonah worships the gourd, of course. He kind of liked it because it was shade providing, but that's a big difference between that and worship. But we'll get there, we'll get there in just a little while. But good. But I like, I like your link. Verse 11. They said to him, what must we do to you to make the sea calm around us? For the sea was growing more and more stormy. He answered, heave me overboard and the sea will calm down for you. For I know that this terrible storm came upon you on my account. He's the calmest man in the history of the world. You know, lightning, thunders, you know, tossing all over the place. The boat's about to break. The sailors are panic-stricken, understandably. And Jonah's just like, look, it's all because of me. Toss me over. Everything is cool. But they didn't want to do that. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to regain the shore, but they could not. For the sea was growing more and more stormy about them. Ibn Ezra, here you can see how irrational this story is, by the way. Ibn Ezra, the great grammarian, looks at this verse and says, no rational person would continue to row at this point in the story. They tried. They threw the baggage overboard. Now they drew lots, which they all believed in its authenticity. Jonah confessed, and he gave them a solution. Even Ezra believes that if he were on that ship, he doesn't say it this way, he would have tossed Jonah overboard also. You've got to save the boat. And if this person is telling you that that's the story, that's the story. So even Ezra rereads the verse, JPS translates properly here. He says, the, nevertheless, the men had rowed hard. He just adds a past perfect there as a means of saying that the rowing already took place earlier. That's because even Ezra can't believe that these sailors are still trying to save Jonah. But the whole point of the book or at least this chapter, is that here you have these pagans who are above and beyond fabulous, Sam, 
Yeah. 100%, I agree with you. But, but even Ezra says, even so, a rational person at this point, if you have a person who seems to know what's going on, saying, here's how you solve the problem, most people would say, let's save ourselves and throw Jonah overboard. So let's read on a little bit more. No, no, let's, let's read on a little bit more. Then they cried out to the Lord, Oh, please, Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not hold us guilty of killing an innocent person, for you, O Lord, by your will, have brought this about. And they heaved Jonah overboard, and the sea stopped raging. Amazing. They pray to God, right? The men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Referring to the God of Israel. This is God's personal name here. So, the sailors... I don't think that they converted to monotheism at this moment. They probably continue to worship their dung beetles. They're just impressed with God. And, and therefore, as pagans go, pagans take on as many deities as they respect. But what's amazing is that these people are so religious and so sincere and so genuine and so moral and they so don't want to harm Jonah. Even when he confesses, even when he says, here's a solution, they're amazing. And so the chapter one, if you had to summarize it, or if I had to summarize it, I would just summarize it by saying, Jonah is saying to the world, Ivri Anochi, I am a Hebrew. I am opposed to all of you pagans. I don't care how nice you are, even if you're perfect, even if you're above and beyond what any human being would do. And I'm also a sinner. I'm going to keep rebelling against God on this point. I stand by my rebellion. It doesn't matter that there's a sympathetic reading of a prophetic narrative, would say Jonah. I think that these people are pagans, and therefore these people, I have nothing to do with them. Then we go to chapter 2, the famed whale part. Some people, all these people who think that whales are mammals, and therefore this huge fish over here could not possibly be a whale. Give me a break. I mean, I know that whales are mammals also, and they're not really. They're fish, because we all know that from the time we're three years old, so are dolphins. But I know they're biologically mammals. But, But don't hold biblical narrative to contemporary biological categories. It wouldn't be bad if it says a great fish and it refers to a whale. So anyway, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, chapter 2. And Jonah remained in the fish's belly three days and three nights, and he had all-you-can-eat sashimi. It doesn't say that here, but I know that that's what we would have said in today. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. He said, In my trouble I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol I cried out, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The floods engulfed me. All your breakers and billows swept, swept over me. I thought I was driven out of your, away out of your sight. Would I ever gaze again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep engulfed me. Weeds twined around my head. I sank to the base of the mountains. The bars of the earth closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I called the Lord to mind, and my prayer came before you into your holy temple. What is this prayer about? I was in trouble, I prayed, you saved me, and where would I like to be, says Jonah? I want to be in the temple. That's that's the refrain. In fact, these verses are incredibly parallel to other verses in Psalms, which are temple Psalms. And it just sounds like that's what he's... He's dreaming. Here's what he's not saying. God, I feel so bad that I ran away from you. I'm so sorry. Give me another chance. I'll go to Ninveh. Anything. Just get me out of this thing. Right? Whatever. Huh? He's not repenting because he's standing firm in his rebellion against God. And in fact, he's telling God why. He's saying, God, I don't want to deal with pagans. I want to go to the temple and pray to you. That's all I want. Save me from the whale. Get me back to Jerusalem where I belong. Let me go to the temple. 
And then to wrap up his argument, verse 9, but I, excuse me, they who cling to empty folly forsake their own welfare, but I with loud thanksgiving will sacrifice to you, what I have vowed I will perform, deliverance is the Lord. So who are the the they who cling to empty folly, referring to pagans? Which pagans is he talking about? So several commentators here say, well, he's referring to the sailors. They made vows in the previous chapter, even though Jonah technically didn't hear them because he was underwater and possibly already inside of a whale. doesn't matter. Literarily, this prayer refers back to those vows. And what he's saying is when pagans make vows, they're pagans. Why would you even listen to them? But I make, when I make vows, I keep them, O God. So several commentators think that Jonah's prayer is referring specifically to contrast himself with those lovely sailors. And then there are others who say, forget the sailors, he's contrasting himself with Ninveh. They're going to repent, but they're frauds, they're pagans. But I, I serve you properly, O God. And Rashi just says, he's talking about pagans. <laughs> they could refer to the Sailors, it can refer to the people of Ninveh because it's not, the story is not about sailors and it's not about the people of Ninveh. It's about Jonah's struggle with a pagan world. And these pagans are models. You have the sailors who represent, they're great from the get-go. These are people who pray, they're moral, they don't want to drown Jonah, even when Jonah says, drown me. Right? And then you have the people of Ninveh who are pagans who do the best repentance in the history of the Bible. Right? And specifically, these are exaggerated, exaggerated things. But they have to be exaggerated to make the point. By the way, why, if, it, if it's not the historical Ninveh, but rather a typological Ninveh, why Ninveh? The association with Babel? So they're Assyrians, right? Ninveh is Assyrians, so a wicked empire to be sure. But one reason is exactly what you're saying. The story works best if you're dealing with the worst possible pagans who then become the best possible penitents. And on the historical plane, the city of Ninveh helps us here. right? It's not just any old pagan city. We're dealing with a city that the people of Israel hated passionately, and rightly so. right? So that makes it for a better story. There's a bonus, though. The Aramaic word for fish is nunya. Fish. Nunya. Nunya. Aramaic. Okay? So, and in fact, we archaeologists find some really fun things, including that the coat of arms of the city of Ninveh was a picture of a fish. So ride with this one, folks. Jonah went, fleeing God in his rebellion, into the belly of a real fish, and then into the belly of Ninveh, whose symbol is a fish. Fun bonus. I think it would have worked well even just with the really wicked part, but, but I think that it's extra bonus, wonderful, when you're dealing with that. So Jonah's point in chapter 2, just to make sure that this is clear, is... God, I am a Hebrew. I just serve you. I want to be in the temple, you and me, and other God-fearing people. That's where we all belong. And I don't want to deal with pagan sailors, and I don't want to deal with pagan Ninevites, and I don't want to have anything to do with them because they are pagans. And God, it frustrates me to no end that you're willing to pardon them or tolerate them as pagans. If they would stop being pagans, that would be great. Yeah. I find this extremely troubling. They claim to empty folly, forsake their own welfare. But basically, you know what? There comes a point when I don't care if it's rational or not. Is the parent going to say it's not rational for me to dive into the water to save my child? 
No, it may be irrational, but it's whether it's be considered moral, probably moral, well, ethical, and then certainly moral to do it, yes. That supersedes any issue of rationality or not. And God forbid we should ever be 100% rational. Fair enough. On that happy note, I think very. I think most people keep up to your. Uh, anyway, the the bottom line is fair point. Let's go over to chapter three. We're well, at the end of chapter two. The Lord commanded the fish and spewed Jonah upon, out upon dry land. But clearly, Jonah hasn't repented. Right? There's no repentance in this story. The sailors repent. They're making vows. Jonah doesn't say, "I'm sorry for what I've done." It's like, "No, I'm still in this rebellion with you, God. I don't like the situation that I'm in." I don't like the fact that I have to go to Ninja. You're making me go, so I will go. Then chapter 3 rolls in. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go at once to Ninveh, that great city, and proclaim to it what I will tell you. Jonah went at once to Ninveh in accordance with the Lord's command. Ninveh was an enormously large city, a three days walk across. Jonah started out and made his way into the city the distance of one day's walk and proclaimed, Forty days more and Ninveh shall be overthrown. Notice, by the way. Huh? Yeah, first of all, yes. And second of all, there's no mention of, oh, and if you repent, things will get better. He doesn't really want to help them along in this process, right? So our commentators debate whether that already is Jonah telling God, I still really don't want to do this. I don't want them to repent. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, a great and small alike put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, sat in ashes. And he had the word cried through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, a flock or herd shall taste anything. Everybody's going to fast. They shall not graze and they shall not drink water. So again, it's unbelievably exaggerated, but that's the point. Most wicked city ever, doing the best repentance ever. And by the way, Give me three good examples of, of Israelite repentance in anywhere in Tanakh. Name three. You're struggling. So am I. It's really hard to have a narrative where a wicked town or nation or there are a few. There, Prophet Samuel did a great job for the nation. Okay, that's one. Check. But you got to really, really scrounge around to come up with three banner examples of prophetic success in getting people to repent or anybody getting people to repent. So this worked. And that's why it became the Yom Kippur Haftarah, among other reasons. But it's a great example of of full-blown repentance. They shall be covered with sackcloth, verse 8, man and beast, and shall cry mightily to God. Let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty. Who knows, but that God may turn and relent. He may turn back from his wrath, so we do not perish. Hate to say it, but as much as I have incredible hostility toward the historical city of Ninveh, how could you not? They were really, truly awful people, as we've discussed, and we'll discuss more come November. But this king of Ninveh sounds like a prophet, too. He's saying all the right things. In fact, he sounds just like the prophet Joel, who makes exactly the same claim. We should repent. Who knows? Maybe God will relent. Right? In other words, we have to do our job, and hopefully God will come through and do his job. The king of Ninveh and the people of Ninveh are a banner, righteous town all of a sudden. It drives me crazy to say that, but it ain't it the truth. God saw what they did. How they were turning back from their evil ways, and God renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon them and did not carry it out. Now, if the book ended here, by the way, I would tell you that the book was actually about repentance. Right? Jonah, for whatever reason, opposed it. I would say that the 20th century scholars are right. Jonah opposed repentance. God forced him to go. The people then repented. God saved them. Happily ever after, and Jonah, too bad on you. Or or else he learned his lesson, because look, he went. 
If you stop the book here, I would tell you the book is about repentance. I would agree with the 20th century crowd, but I don't because there's a chapter four. And chapter four sets up what several of you have pointed out in different ways, namely that what's really going on here is a battle between God and the prophet. That's what's been going on all along. It's not about Nineveh. It's not about the sailors. It's Jonah has a principal disagreement with God. And this brings us to the climax of the book. Chapter 4. This displeased Jonah greatly, and he was grieved. He prayed to the Lord, saying, Oh, Lord, isn't this just what I said when I was still in my own country? This is why I fled beforehand to Tarshish, for I know that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. Hold it. Figured once you add the Hebrew, the text of the pages will get very unwieldy. But... The Hebrew goes something like this. This is what I said when I was still on my land. That's why I ran away in the first place. For I know. What does it sound like? And good. And what's the next word? Yeah, it's from the Torah. God told this to Moshe right after the forgiveness or the pardon at the golden calf. Right, so good. But hold on. So let's do it again. Oh, ve'emet. That's where Jonah stops. He doesn't say ve'emet. He says, v'nicham al That's the kicker to the book. The kicker to the book is that he omits ve'emet because, God, you're not being truthful. You're pardoning pagans. This is not truth. Truth demands that you destroy the city. That's his protest right here. He's saying, God, you're being compassionate. I knew you would be compassionate. But I want justice. They're still pagans. And by the way, what's Jonah's name? Yonah ben Amitai. Amitai means the God of truth. His very name carries the meaning of the book. That's why that's his name, right? His name has great literary significance. It might have been his father's name also, but that's, that's not what matters to us here. What matters is the literary significance. Amitai means God is true. Jonah's God is a God of truth. And so look at the next verse. Please, Lord, take my life, for I would rather die than live. Why does he want to die? This is the flip of Moses. Why is it the flip? Because Moses says, take my life if you're going to destroy oh, Israel. Correct. Moses was pleading on behalf of the people. Jonah is not pleading on behalf of the people. Jonah is... To me, this is a great existential moment in prophecy here. Jonah's whole life, because he is a prophet, revolves around his love of God. He loves God, is in awe of God, would love nothing more than to be 24-7 in the temple. That's what he said when he was inside Mr. Fish. That's what he wants to do. He cannot deal with a pagan world. By the way, no prophet can deal with it, but other prophets have other mechanisms. But for Jonah, where it's all about truth, God's compassion get to pagans gets in the way of things. It's not the, he's not opposed to God's compassion. He's opposed to God's compassion when people remain not ethical monotheists. So in this case, sure, the people of Ninveh are now moral, at least temporarily. But they're still pagans, and therefore they still deserve to be destroyed in Jonah's book. The second God told him in chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 2, I need you to go to Ninveh. What did God just do there? He didn't just say, I need you to go to Ninveh. He just completely destroyed Jonah's God conception. Because the God that Jonah worships is the God of truth. And as soon as God himself commands Jonah, go to Ninveh, Jonah's like, oh no, what's going to happen? They're going to repent. They're going to get better. They're going to listen to me. But they're still going to be pagans. And God is going to forgive them. 
But that's not my God. But wait a minute. The one who just spoke to me is actually God. Jonah's rebellion against God stems from his deepest love and fear of God. It's not because he's a rebellious prophet in the, in, because he doesn't want to do God's will. It's that his concept of God has been thwarted by God himself. That takes away his purpose of life. His whole life revolves around his God. But now real God is telling him, well, I'm not your God. I'm real God. Right? What God is telling Jonah, and this is the lesson of the book, is that nobody, not even a prophet, is allowed to put God into a box. We all do. We can't even help ourselves. Right? People always put God into boxes. If we want to have a relationship with God, we can't understand infinite, so we make God a little more finite. Typically, the God that we would even either like to know or something that relates to us. That's a fatal flaw of humanity. It's not just Jonah's problem. It's everybody's problem. Right? So Jonah here is caught in the horns of this dilemma. Jonah's problem is he has a beautiful concept of God, but it's only part of the picture. And God is saying, yeah, but I'm the picture. And your picture is not the whole story. You're right. If you ask God in an interview, right? I hate to be too, I don't want to be too informal about this. If you ask God in an interview, are you happy that there are pagans in the world? He would say, no. I want everybody to serve me and me alone. That's what all the messianic prophecies are about. But if there are pagan people who don't know better and they're moral, I could live with that. Not ultimately. Mashiach won't come until everybody's a monotheist. But if you have these nice sailors, I could still respect them because they're moral and they're trying their best. They don't know better. And the people of Nineveh, you're right, one day they'll serve me too. But for now, at least they stopped murdering and stealing and raping and all the terrible things that they were doing. They're nice people. I could tolerate that. But Jonah can't. Jonah says, God, you got to destroy them. And if you won't, and I knew that you wouldn't, I can't live anymore because the God that I serve isn't you. So God has to teach him a lesson. Here comes Mr. Plant, right? The Lord replied, verse 4, Are you that deeply grieved? God shrugs it off. I feel so bad. Poor Jonah here is worked up to the point of death. His whole life and all of his meaning and his God love is shattered by God. And God is like, really? That's all you got? That, you're that upset? So God is going to teach him a lesson. How is he going to do it? Now Jonah had left the city and found a place east of the city. He made a booth there and sat under it in the shade until he should see what happened in the, to the city. The Lord God provided a resinous plant, whatever, however you pronounce that word. In Hebrew, it's better anyway. It's kikayon, which sounds like vayake et yonah, when the fish spewed out yonah. So I don't know what kind, you know, scholars try to identify the particular plant, but it's a shade-producing plant, but the word kikayon sounds like the word yonah. But anyway, which grew up over Jonah to provide shade for his head and save him from discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. That's fine, Rissimus is good. But the next day at dawn, God provided a worm which attacked the plant, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, and he became faint. He begged for death, saying, I would rather die than live. Jonah, God said to Jonah, are you so deeply grieved about the plant? Yes, he replied, so deeply that I want to die. God has him set up. The way that I interpret this whole thing, the one-minute version, which is about the time that we have for it right now, Jonah looked God in the eye just a few verses ago and said, God, I have a battle of principle with you. I think you should be truth. And truth demands that you destroy the city of Nineveh because they're still pagan. And God says, are you so deeply grieved? Like, stop it. I'm God and I should be in charge of making God's decisions. You should not. How am I going to teach Jonah a lesson? I'm going to make sure that he's really hot and wants to die over the heat. In other words, Jonah, you're a human being. You want to die because of this great principle battle with God, and you want to die because it's hot outside. 
Hint, hint. That's why you can't understand me, because you, you're a human being. You're a great human being, one of the greatest human beings ever, but you're human. That's why, that's why he does the plant thing, just to show him, look, you want to die also? Okay, you're a human being. And now God can finally get him where he wants. Then the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not work for and which you did not grow, which appeared overnight and perished overnight. Should I not care about Ninveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not yet know their right hand from their left, and many beasts as well? Why did God save the city of Ninveh? They They repented, right? Well, but but he doesn't say that here. That chapter three was all about that. Chapter three was, oh yeah, they repented and God forgave them. Bing, huh? He has compassion. He has compassion on people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. He's saying, Jonah, they just don't know better. You're right, they're pagans, but they're no better than the animals, right? There's 120,000 humans. Let me just go for a little while because I'm running a long time. 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand. How can I not have compassion on my creatures? He's not saying, hey, Jonah, this is the playbook. They were sinners. You were the prophet. You told them to stop it. Or not really, but you told them that they would be destroyed. They stopped it. I forgave them. That's all he needs to say. Just read chapter 3. But no, God is not invoking that argument because that's not what he's trying to teach Jonah. What he's trying to teach Jonah is, Jonah, you're a human being. You can't understand my ways. But I am compassionate. I'm even compassionate on pagans because they can't tell better. And Jonah, there's no way Jonah can get the last word in this book. That would kill this story. God has to get the last word. What God is saying is stop trying to put me into a box. Let's summarize all of this now that we've read all 48 verses. Jonah is Yonah ben Amitai. He believes in truth and justice. And for him... The second God, in verse 1 of the book, said, go, because I want to help them. Jonah, that was it. Jonah wanted to die. Because he realizes that real God is telling him that he wants to have compassion on the people of Ninveh, even though they will remain pagan. Jonah would rather die than that. So God had to have a confrontation to teach him, you're right, you don't understand my ways, but you're a human being. You also want to die when it's hot outside. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a whole, it, it was an excellent way to try to teach him the point. And the point also is, Jonah, I know you're an Ivri. I know that you're the one who understands me better than anybody on the planet at the moment. And they don't. They can't tell their right hand from their left hand. You can. You can tell your left from your right. And that's why you're so frustrated and they're not. The closer you get to God, the more you actually realize how little you understand God. Getting close to God brings humility with that, not arrogance. It's not like, ooh, wow, I really know God's ways. It's the opposite. That's why Jonah is so frustrated. Because he is a prophet and is that close to God, it's precisely he who recognizes the infinite gap between God and people. And that drives him crazy. He wants to die over this. So it's the humility that he's learning which frustrates him, but it's exactly the point of the story. Jonah is simply a larger-than-life microcosm of any religious person. Right? You understand God so well when you're little... And as you get older, you realize it's a lot more complicated than that. Or at least you're supposed to realize that it's a lot more complicated than that, right? He didn't. And Jonah didn't want to let go. He knew it. He, knew it. He, he, he did understand. But he wanted to die because he understood. He understood in verse 1. When God says, go to Ninveh, it was over to him. He realized, okay, I'd rather die than have to put up with... I'm, my life is devoted to my God. And real God is something else. I can't handle that, he says. So God tells him the main point is, look, 
You don't understand me, but that's okay. You don't need to die. You did something great. Look what Jonah did in this book, as much as he would hate to admit it. He made the pagan sailors respect and worship God. He made the people of Nineveh, the wickedest city ever, repent, at least temporarily. He actually was quite successful by our standards. He did a terrific job. He didn't bring Mashiach, and that kills him. And they're still pagans, and that kills him too. But God is like, but they don't know better. I could tolerate them when they're this nice. It's not ideal. I agree. But for now, this is good. I have compassion on my creatures, same as I have compassion on compassion on these animals in the city. It's just the way that it goes. God is God. So, and then the other message, which you said much earlier in the shiur, I think is also a, a benefit of this thing, which is that one of the great, I mean, one of my favorite things about Judaism just in general is that we don't demand that everybody become Jewish in order for Mashiach to come. I love that, right? The classic prophetic vision is what Jonah has, which is we should be great Jews and non-Jews should be great non-Jews. That's the messianic vision. That's, that's what Mashiach is here, when everybody's doing that all at once. Jonah has this very strange quirk, which is unique in the Bible. We have the possibility of really superior pagans who remain pagan. Right? You don't usually see pagans looking that way. Right? The question is, what should God do here? And what God is saying is, we have to have compassion on human beings when they're nice. If they're humane and good, even if we completely reject their beliefs. In this case, we want those beliefs to go away. They're not monotheists. Right? But we can respect them as human beings. And God says that trumps God's hatred of idolatry. As long as they're moral. If they're immoral, then God has no patience for that either. That's God, God, God stamps out, or should stamp out, immorality. And so that's what I think the book is about. It's a quirky book, but I think that this is the one thesis that I've at least been able to, to work through, at least in the last 20 years of working on this problem, that, that at least does it for me, at least as of today. Uh, so what's crazy about the whole thing as we uh, wind this down Today is the 20th shiur of the, this I'm allowed to say, even in the Omer before it officially gets dark. It's the 20th shiur of this series, and the last shiur until next year. We resume it in, in November, and then we have another 19, another 19, that's after the Chagim. So, right, so we've done 20, and there will be, I think, at least on the calendar now, 19 more sessions for the second year, which will pick up the rest of the books that we call the Twelve Prophets, and then what we call the Ketuvim, the Holy Writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, the Five Megillot, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. That should be 19 shiurim. Maybe we'll do 20. And uh, one of the things that I like about this shiur, I mean, I, I've loved many, many, many things. Going back to the first shiur, some of you may recall, we started off in the library over there, and then within two seconds, it was a little out of control, and we kind of just took over this room, and it's been here ever since. We've had over 70 people participating regularly in this shiur, not to mention a whole bunch of people who have kind of come in and out over the, over the year. And... There were some naysayers telling me at the beginning when I started working at KJ, and don't even bother with an evening shiur who's going to come. But I'm like, I'm, not, I'm, 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 a, I'm a believer. I said, look, let's try it. If nobody comes, I'll pick a different time to do stuff. And, well, it wasn't like that at all. It was simply a fabulous you know, experience learning with you and the people who are not in the room tonight. Some people have been... And, and this is all part of my old school philosophy. It's very, lots, of, lots of times in shuls, it's good to have you know, these one-off lectures with catchy, snappy things. And I think that there's a lot of value to that also. But I'm still the old school guy who believes in, if you do, do something week in, week out, you, you transform. I think over 20 weeks, we've done just a tremendous amount together. And I'm very grateful to all of you, both in the shiur and all the emails I get afterwards with, with follow-up stuff and, and discussions in, in shul. It's really, really wonderful. So I want to thank, first of all, KJ, 
for making this all possible in the first place. It's exactly one year ago today that I began at KJ, June 1, actually. So it's a nice, nice wrap-up from that point of view. We became Eastsiders on May 27th a year ago. And so, although, you know, from an identity point of view, I still have to wonder, am I a Westsider who lives technically on the East Side, or am I now an East Side? Same as if you make Aliyah. Are you an American living in Israel, or are you now an Israeli? It's an interesting question. And so here I think it's a little less extreme, and at least I believe I've picked up at least most of the accent and some of the nuances in that ever since coming across. It's also exactly to the date, the third year of mine working for the, as the National Scholar for the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. So June 1 is just a good day of the year to start things. And I'm really grateful to the Institute for making all of these things possible. I'm grateful to all of you who have joined the Institute, have become participants in our work, both in the Shiurim, but also we do a lot more than just the Shiurim, our journal, our website, all of our programs throughout the country. It's really amazing what we've done, and, and, and thank you all for all of you who have joined. Definitely always feel free to go to our website, jewishideas.org, which is on every one of our source sheets to learn more about our, our work. But most of all, I want to thank you. It really has been an absolute pleasure learning with everybody here and all the people who were unable to make it tonight or even up against the Sheva Bracha, you know, all, all, all the good stuff. But it's really been an absolutely amazing experience, and I, I will miss this quite a lot over the next five months. Yeah, doesn't mean I won't be thinking about it all summer as I get ready to prepare the next wave. It's, it's really been great. But, but I look forward to picking it up with you in November, and I'll be in touch, and I'm sure I'll see most of you before that. So thank you very much. And have a wonderful summer. Oh, just coming attractions. This I can, if you.